Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. We have a guest today, but first, Ian, how you doing, man? I'm doing pretty well. I'm hanging in there. It has been how many weeks now since there's been no sports? It's been almost a month now. It's been very bizarre. I'm trying to hang in there. Almost coming up on four, yeah. But to help us get through this tough time, we brought in Boy Genius from uh, Vancouver. Uh, the Athletics Harmon Dial is joining us today. How you doing, man? Pretty good, guys. How are you? Doing pretty good. We're super excited to have you on. We've uh, we all feel like we're kind of pretty similar we're all pretty similar in age too kind of broke in at the same time so we're super stoked that uh, you're the first guest in the history of the pod similar in age <laughs> similar in age i disagree Harmon is coming up on he just turned 20 rachel you're in university right now doing a master's program i feel like the old man for once this feels weird <laughs> old man syndrome <laughs> old man ian old man turning 28 this year yeah it's a younger Are you podcast, about the eye test in this pod Ooh. I'm just saying, you kids don't get it today with your technology <laughs> and your... <laughs> We're already off to a brand new start here. This is just the chirping has already begun. So Harmon's actually one of my favorite writers. He's been writing out in Vancouver. You started at Canucks Army is where I saw a lot of your work. And then you got hired by, I think, Myrtle and Botchford kind of tag team to bring you in and made you a uh, boy genius over in Vancouver. You've been doing a lot of really cool work where you're looking at the video, you're looking at the numbers, and you're trying to break things down in a way that makes sense. And that tends to be the way that me and Rachel like going about our hockey analysis. So we thought it'd be really good to bring you on. feel like we get into a nice little discussion here. Yeah, 100%. And for me, I remember the first time I DM'd uh, you, Ian, was actually to to tell you that um, you were sort of one of my inspirations as I was writing because I would read your work at The Athletic. I remember, I think the first piece I ever read of yours was uh, The Leafs Should Play Travis Dermott More um, and Ron Hainsey Less or something along those lines. And I was just, just like, that this is brilliant. Right. Like, it's got the analytics, it's got the eye test. Like, I loved everything about it. And so... Um, I think we should stop praising each other. And <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure how much people are liking this. Just, oh, the athletic is so great and Harmon's so great. <laughs> Ian, you're so smart. All right, so I think we we want to get into the Canucks because so Harmon, as we mentioned, you cover the Canucks and they, I know a lot of people kind of pick them to be maybe on the bubble or just kind of in the bottom. No one really had them having a really good season, but there was... A couple really nice surprises, and so just to kind of recap the season, what are your thoughts maybe on on the Canucks' performance and some of the tracking that you did, maybe areas of concern that came up, just a, a kind of an overview of, of kind of what you saw, maybe what surprised you? Yeah, I think going into the season, um, expectations were that the team would take another step forward, but... Um, probably in all likelihood they wouldn't make uh, the playoffs, maybe flirt with the wild card spot. And I think 
I mean, they were right in the thick of things um, right before the season ended. I think they were third in the Pacific by points percentage, a very weak Pacific division, mind you. Um, but I think overall, definitely they've exceeded um, what people thought they could accomplish going into the year. Um, and really, it comes down to a lot of their elite talent. I mean, you, you look first and foremost... Uh, Jim Benning went out last last offseason and, and, and traded a first-round pick for JT Miller, who leads the team in points, 72 points in, in 69 games. He's really broken out um, and been a pleasant surprise. Elias Pettersson has taken another subtle but crucial step forward as, uh, a, as a number one center. Um, really, the, the most impressive part about his game really isn't necessarily the, the point totals, which stand out to the average viewer, but just how dominant he's become as a two-way player, and you see a lot of that in the in the underlying numbers. Another su- surprise, of course, Quinn Hughes emerging as a legitimate number one defenseman right away. Um, as mm-hmm. a rookie 20-year-old defenseman, that definitely wasn't in the cards, despite how uh, highly he was regarded as a prospect. Um, and, and beyond that, it was just, I mean... Even uh, a lot of the supporting cast, guys like Adam Goddat, Tanner Pearson, Jake Vertanen having career years, the team stayed relatively healthy. Um, a, a lot of things went well for this group. I think what really holds them back is they, they're they a pretty awful team defensively, definitely bottom five in the <laughs> NHL. Um, with regards to allowing shots, scoring chances, expected goals against, um, a lot of those, um, a, a lot of those sort of uh, areas of, a lot of those mishaps were covered up by Jacob Markstrom in net, who, for my money, is the most underrated goalie in the NHL, just from a reputation standpoint. He's definitely the Canucks' MVP, even with how well Miller, Pedersen, and Hughes played. Um, and so I think overall, if you try and profile this team, um, the Canucks are kind of similar to the Leafs, but with a much worse bottom six. You've got elite talent <laughs> offensively, mm-hmm. um, a pretty shaky blue line, and an excellent number one goalie. And, and so that's kind of what I see when I look at this Vancouver Canucks team. Yeah, okay. So that's that's kind of interesting that you made the, the Toronto comparison. Like, we obviously, we talk about the Leafs a lot. Um, a lot of people, so we had the Hockey Analytics Night in Canada a couple weeks ago. And I remember Megan Cheka asking you about um, your tracking. Uh, what kind of things do you track? And then how does that kind of help you with your writing with your analysis of players because I know like on this podcast and Ian can speak to it too um a lot of our analysis comes by a well watching the games but b we we like to look at the underlying numbers I do tracking for York all by hand so what kind of tracking do you do and kind of how does it help you because I think that that's a super key piece that a lot of people don't necessarily understand yeah, I think for for me, I mostly track a lot of the transitional data. I basically cover um, if if any of the listeners are familiar with Corey Schneider's tracking, pretty much everything that that he sort of tracks. Um, so looking at zone exits, uh, zone entries um, in the offensive zone, looking at passes that lead to shots and and players that are sort of um, creating a lot offensively, um, defensively looking at which individual defensemen are defending the rush really well. And so I think you can sort of put together and, and get you can get a sense of which players are driving a lot of play. So for instance, you'll notice someone like Elias Pettersson, he's right off the charts as far as zone entries, zone exits. He is just... 
he's 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 almost he's right on the cusp of being sort of in that um, Nathan McKinnon, Matthew Barzell tier as far as one of the league's best transitional players. So that's one of the things you sort of uh, notice right away. Um, and I think it also helps assessing the team from a macro perspective, especially because I'm I, I try and track similar to Corey because I can then stack his stack my data my data against his league wide tracking right so okay. for example if you have like Quinn Hughes it has and I'm just throwing a number out here a 48% possession exit rate I want to make sure that I, that I track almost identical to Corey so that I can sit, ask myself like okay how good is that league wide or from a league perspective perspective even um looking at vancouver zone exits are are they in the upper half of the league bottom half i mean for instance in in the middle of the season what i really noticed with vancouver was they were just getting dominated um off the rush by other teams they were they were just allowing so many controlled entries um and more specifically passing plays off these controlled entries which is sort of like a double whammy right there um, and so because of the way I was able to track, I could then cross-reference that with Corey's data and say, okay, yeah, this is a bottom five team when it comes to defending the rush. So it's you can basically start to quantify uh, a lot of different styles um, with this team. So for instance, I started tracking last year and this season as well. And so when you talk about last season, the Canucks were very, they created a lot off the rush um, they kind of struggled creating offense um, off the cycle and off the forecheck. And what you've noticed, what I've noticed in the data this year is they're creating a lot less off the rush, but they're a lot better sort of fighting for chances. Um, they're a lot better off of rebounds and deflections. So you really get to understand the style of a team a lot more. So for for um, Colorado, a team like Colorado, that uh, a squad that, you know, when, when you watch them play, you can see, wow, this is a fast team. You see that in, in the underlying micro data where they crush basically every NHL team when it comes to controlled exits and entry. So really, I think it helps evaluate the team from a stylistic standpoint and what their strengths and weaknesses are. I'm always a big fan of that transitional data. And for people who don't know, Corey Schneider, we're referring to not the AHL goaltender. <laughs> we're referring to uh, manually tracking. He's Does he live in Carolina? I know he's a fan of the Carolina Hurricanes. I'm not sure where he's doing it I from. I think. But I'm not 100% sure. He does so many hours of tracking. I mean, there are nights where if you're up late on Twitter at like 3 a.m., he'll be up there tweeting about whatever game it is that he's tracking. He tracked every game, basically. I think it was in 2014 he did. Yeah. And then that's when he started his project for, okay, I'm going to track as many games as I can from 2017, 2018, 2019. He's doing it again this season. Uh, he's one of my favorite resources out there when it comes to looking at moving the puck up the ice with possession, moving it into the offensive zone. And then something Harmon mentioned when it comes to passes you create after gaining the zone. This is something that Harmon wrote about, and it made me really think about zone entries as a stat because people always joke, about oh yeah, I'm sure that you like your uh, your little zone entries there, but uh, <laughs> yes. I care about goals. You know, I care about creating actual important quality chances. And for what it's worth, that argument I think is a fair one because if you're just gaining the zone, like uh, let's say a Kasperi Kapanen or a Jake Vertanen, where you come flying in off the rush and then you fire a shot from the top of the circle, that doesn't really matter because that's a low percentage chance. What you want to do is you want to gain the zone and then make a play. 
And I think there's a, a really good stat that Harmon's looked at, which is, I'm not sure what you call it. I, I call it pass percentage. I'm not sure if you call it passes off the rush, but basically looking at a player who gains the offensive zone blue line with the puck and then is able to complete a pass. If you look at that, it's the league's best assist generators. It's the league's best point generators. It's, passes it's off a really the rush good percentage. Yeah, that's what the NHL calls it. Okay. Yeah. I'm I'm a huge fan of that stat. That's something that Harmon wrote about, and I think it helps show value in sometimes places where you wouldn't see it. I think Antoine Roussel was kind of the player who said yeah, it. Yeah, it was um, one of the things that I noticed in, in the small sample that I had tracked last year was it was, I mean, you, you, go, you go back to the whole point of you want to know what leads to goals, what leads to points. Um, that stat was actually when I compared the first half of, uh, you know the the sample in the first half of the season, and looking at who were the leaders in, in passes off the rush, that helped predict who sort of project or who who sort of produced a lot of points in the second half of the year. So it actually had a lot of uh, correlation to um, actual points generation. And so again, going back to the Canucks example, uh, Pedersen just blows every other Canuck out of the water in that category. And um, again, you mentioned. Uh, someone like Jake Vertanen, who enters the zone a lot, he creates a lot of zone entries, but his decision making thereafter isn't very good. He's not very efficient at turning his entries into scoring chances. That really shows itself uh, in that passing data as well. So I think it's uh, a really good way of of looking at which players are are, are driving play offensively because it's a if if you think about it, what it's tracking is which players are entering the offensive zone and making a play. So it it, it intuitively makes sense as well. All right, so we kind of covered the Canucks stylistically, and, and one of the things you mentioned right off the hop was Jacob Markstrom. And I remember like throughout the season, you and I kind of go back and forth because I noticed he was having a really good year, and I definitely had some questions because they have Thatcher Demko kind of coming in the wings. And I mean, this is kind of twofold. Does you you wrote a piece on kind of that goaltending dynamic, but does the fact that Jacob Markstrom maybe deserve a, a Vesna nomination does that change where the Canucks um, want to go with the goalie tandem? Because if they were thinking maybe we move on from Markstrom, does a Vesna nomination and the kind of season he had? Uh, maybe change their mind. Right. And, and I mean, I think to sort of put the context out there, um, in the back half of last season, w- from I think January on, was really when Markstrom caught fire. And so the storyline coming into this year was can Markstrom replicate that? And the answer has been a definitive yes. If you. Uh, the, the one thing to keep in mind is his raw save percentage, I think it's 918 or something, doesn't you know jump off the page or anything. But it's once you account for the defense in front of him, especially when you look at, I mean, we talked about how porous the Canucks have been defending off the rush. Um, th- those sorts of stylistic trends and, and, and how that would impact the the environment in front of a goalie, that's something that companies like ClearSight Analytics and SportLogic are really able to uh, account for. And so both... Sport Logic and ClearSight Analytics had Markstrom as a top five goalie in the NHL this season, so that sort of just sets the stage um, in terms of. I mean, for anyone that watched him, they would they would have seen the same thing. But I know a lot of people outside of the Vancouver market maybe don't know the type of caliber goalie Markstrom has been the past couple of years. Um, again, MVP of the team, so it really does change the change the dynamic because the Canucks would not 
be anywhere near flirting a playoff position if it wasn't for him. Um, and when you look at someone like Thatcher Demko, I think what you saw this season was he was slightly below league average. I think he had a 905 save percentage. Um, I don't think he showed that he was ready to take over as a number one goalie yet this season. And, and when I wrote that piece, uh, I also spoke to Jim Benning um, about their their you know sort of the the dilemma they're in right now and and he's sort of hinted at the fact too that he doesn't think Demko is quite ready he talks about how you usually don't know what you have in a goalie and until they're 26 20 27 just sort of putting the hint out there that maybe he believes Demko needs a little bit more seasoning and um, especially with the Seattle expansion draft being a factor, it's it's a huge decision they're going to have to make. Markstrom, a pending unrestricted free agent, um, and really, it's it, due for a raise. <laughs> yeah, and 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 with the Canucks in a precarious cap situation, they don't have a lot of wiggle room. So, um, I think their priority is going to be to try and re-sign Markstrom. Um, because he has been so vital to the team's success and you don't know what you quite have in Demko if he's ready to be a starter yet. Um, but nobody really knows what's going to happen on uh, on that negotiation because it is expected to be a difficult one. So with Jacob Markstrom, I had a quick uh, just comment here because ClearSight Analytics is something that I loved. It's really cool the way that that company tries to account for factors that the public data isn't taking into account, whether it's a backdoor pass or a two-on-one rush. I feel like with save percentage, it's dumb when you think about it to treat all (laughs) shots as if they're equal because they're not. Shots are very different and they vary. And whether you're facing a breakaway or a shot from the blue line, that's going to really affect whether or not you have a good chance of stopping it or a really difficult chance of stopping it. When you account for the context, I'm looking at clear sight right now, Jacob Markstrom's second in the NHL in uh, his ability to outperform expectations. I think that just kind of speaks to how well he was playing this year before he went down. Absolutely. He was, he was a raw, he stole so many games from them. I think if you look at um, their Vancouver's record, when, when they, when Markstrom faced more than 40 shots in a game was something absurd, like 10 and three. So he, he, oh my he stole games for them. So your GM of the Vancouver Canucks, Harmon Dial. I think in an ideal situation, just looking at age curves and performance and the dynamic in Vancouver, you probably want Markstrom around for another two years. Is it really realistic to think that you're going to get Markstrom on a two-year contract at this point? Or is he, if he wants something more long-term and you're the GM, what do you do in this situation in terms of term, money, kind of, how would you handle it? Because I think what the Canucks want is not necessarily going to be in the cards anymore because Markstrom's just been so good. I mean, Cole Anderson at um, the Columbus Hockey Analytics Conference talked about something similar to ClearSight Analytics where Markstrom has made a bunch of saves that he just has no business making. So how do you handle a goaltender dynamic like that if you're in charge? Right. Um, it's certainly not an easy situation to navigate. I think um, from from what I gathered when I wrote the piece, it seemed as if the Canucks were trying to pursue something in the Miko Koskinen range, 4.5 times 3. Obviously, that's... Um, 
<laughs> really, uh, that was quite the uh, low ball um, from Markstrom's camp's perspective. Um, I think one agent who I spoke to around that time said Markstrom should command something around six million a year. Um, but the but the big part is the term. He said four to five years, and you just know that their camp is going to be looking at term as a big decisive factor. Now, if I'm GM, I, I I've really got to the, the 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 other thing that you really have to. Um, remember is more than anything the goalie market compared to skaters is much more reliant on supply versus demand because if you have um, if you have let's say a defenseman hit the market uh, well 20 teams are going to be interested interested in a UFA top four defenseman there aren't 20 teams that need a number one goalie especially one that's going to be expensive um, and so the the market really fluctuates a lot from year to year. And when I look at the goalie market this year, it seems to be a buyer's market for goalies. Um, you look at the New York Rangers, they have three goalies that they're carrying. They're going to have to move one of those guys. You've got Braden Holpe as a UFA, Robin Leonard, Corey Crawford, Thomas Grice, Anton Hudobin. Um, Columbus has got their situation with both Corpus Allo and Merzlikens. They're probably going to have to make a move at some point within the next year or two as well. So um, a lot of supply of potential number one goalies, but you have not a lot of teams that necessarily have both the um, need and and sort of the cap space. I mean, a lot of the teams that need a, a long-term answer in net a lot of them are rebuilding. Detroit, L.A., Ottawa. Are they going to be willing to pay a big ticket for someone like Markstrom, Leonard, or or Holtby? I don't know. Then you have teams that don't have cap space like San Jose. Um, I think if I assess who really has both the need um, and sort of the, the cap space for a number one goalie, it'd probably be Minnesota, Carolina. Uh, Chicago, Washington, and Vancouver. So I think this is maybe going to be a unique opportunity for the Canucks where they can, if I'm GM, I'm trying to squeeze Markstrom hard. And, um, and, uh, Negotiating one-on-one. Yeah, I mean, I think you got to take advantage as, as much as you can of the fact that I don't know how many other options Markstrom has. Particularly, we've talked about outside of Vancouver, how his reputation may be isn't um isn't in line with his actual performance over the past couple of years that's something that's going to that's going to impact and sort of work in Vancouver's favor as well so um if I'm GM I, I'd be trying to push for something along the lines of six times three it's so hard trying to project what's gonna happen this offseason because we don't even know when the offseason is we don't know what the exactly. cap's going to look like. We don't know if they're going to have to be compliance buyouts because of this just bizarre circumstance that COVID-19 has left the sports world in. So I'm not sure how to how to forecast any of this. Rachel, I can see you trying to come up with a few thoughts right now. Where's your head at right now when it comes to the offseason? If you look at um, I, I look at it economically, right? And from an economics perspective, the way the cap works, they were projecting it to potentially go up all the way to $88 million. But that is based on the fact that they were, the NHL was projecting that there was going to be a whole bunch of revenue and um, the trends were going up. They'd signed the new gambling deal. Like there were a lot of things pointing in a really positive direction. You have now lost at bare minimum 12 regular season games. So an average of six home dates for each team. Um, and some of the more, uh, 
let's say some of the teams that bring in more fans at a higher cost have more home games remaining. So you're losing out on that. You're losing out on playoff merchandise. You're losing out on playoff TV and, and all of that. So if anything, the cap, I can't see it going up. If anything, maybe it goes down because... And and you could see a situation where there is potentially a rollback um, of salary. Maybe everyone is a, is a 5 or 7% rollback. I don't know if that they can do that because of the CBA, but I just, I can't see from an economic perspective how it could go up at this point because of all of the revenue that's been lost. I, I just don't see how it can happen from a strict business perspective. It just wouldn't be shrewd. Yeah, fair point. And the other thing, um, Ian talked about the potential for, for a compliance buyout. Maybe that does happen if, if the salary cap is rolled back. I mean, there's certainly um, precedent uh, for that sort of set already um, and that would impact a team like Vancouver's position if you can get Louis Erickson off your books then that opens up a ton of space <laughs> yes um, or I mean every fan base is licking their lips trying to think okay which contract are we getting know, off the I books mean, this summer okay so Harmon just said Louis Erickson Ian who would you buy out off the Leafs um, I, I want them to trade for Zaitsev again so they can buy them out but uh... <laughs> I saw someone tweet that the the Leafs should use their non-compliance buyout on the Mitch Marner contract as a joke. <laughs> oh my god. You know there are people in their basements are yelling in bars that it needs to be like Marner or Nylander or some other garbage like that. Just stupidity. Meanwhile, the Canucks need like four compliance I, Honestly, the, the Leafs, no one comes to mind. <laughs> I mean, the, the Sharks would sure like a redo on that Vlasic contract by now, I think. And so there, there are a bunch of teams that are hoping for and a And probably Burns. And Burns. Yeah. <laughs> See, like... Okay, so... That Martin Jones contract doesn't look great right now. So speaking of buyouts, defensemen... Like a team Ooh. like Vancouver... How As much would they, uh, like a team like Vancouver that needs like three or four of these, what would they, Edmonton. yeah, like imagine if you could get out of all the, all these bad deals. But anyway. Carolina would be trading them away for future first round picks and high end prospects. Yeah, exactly. All right. So now we've brought up three San Jose defensemen. I want to talk about uh, the one particular one in Vancouver, um, who I still cannot believe fell to them. And you wrote a, a really cool story on Quinn Hughes and I... I it was it's a lot different than your other stories. You have like the dial files, you contribute to the armies and you do different features, but the Quinn Hughes draft story for anyone who hasn't read it is basically the story of how the Canucks landed Quinn Hughes when they did because no one I remember doing a ton of work for that draft because I was working for the Devils at that time and I had kind of created this matrix predicting where each player would go and and what the percentage of their availability would be. And I can tell you at seven, Quinn Hughes was not there. So when you work on those kind of stories, how is it different than when you're working on, let's say, uh, a dial files type of story? Because there's a lot of research, I feel like, that goes into that. Yeah, that Hughes story was, I mean, I think I had the idea in late October. And you can see, I think the the actual piece went out in like early or mid-January. So it took me a lot of time. I think the... The biggest thing is it takes, like, you need to be able to get in touch with the right people. So for me, I was fortunate enough, and um, it took me time to be able to get all these interviews. I think I might have had, like, six or seven different people. I talked to um, three GMs, so that would have been Pierre Dorian, uh, Ken Holland, and... um, and Jim Benning, of course. So though, and those three GMs were all sort of in the top seven 
picking at that time. Um, I had Arizona's uh, director of amateur scouting, who actually since left the organization. So that was so that was really huge. I had four representatives, um, high-ranking ones of teams that picked in that range. Um, had one or two league sources and and another and another scout. So the the biggest thing from that standpoint is like. I sort of had to pull out the the connect schedule and look at okay like when's Ottawa coming into town so I can get get to talk to Dorian right um right and it just takes like you it takes so much research um and and you've got you've got to talk to so many different people um it's it's a lot of fun to do though like just kind of getting a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of what was each team's thought process uh, behind selecting their player and just like you get a little bit of a breadcrumb here and then you got to chase it uh, down a different path. It's, it, it was a lot of fun, fun to chase that story. Yeah. And I think that's one of those stories where I remember reading it going, this is why I pay for the athletic. Like it's one of those things where you're like, that's, that's a level of reporting that you don't normally get because you're used to game stories. And so when you have stuff like that and, Quinn Hughes is now playing like he's a premier player in a Canadian market. And so there's so many different ways that that you can kind of take that. Um, what is he like? Have you had a chance to kind of build that relationship with him? And and maybe there's like a feature coming down or or how do you handle that? Like it, when the player that you're writing for, you're also dealing with on a daily basis. So yeah, I think um my experience with Quinn and just the rest of the Canucks has been nothing but great. Um, all of those guys are, I think, and, and that's one of the biggest compliments that people have had of Vancouver's core players is just they're so down to earth. Um, they they always put like the stereotypical 110% effort in. And, and the biggest thing is they never show a lack of effort defensively, whether it's Patterson, Hughes, Besser. I think that's just... I beg to differ on Brock Besser. <laughs> I don't know, man. He's actually like improved a ton defensively, especially this year. I think early in the early in his career, in his rookie and sophomore, he was, not, was good, not good, like at all. And that's just sort of part of his um, game where he's kind of rounded it out. But um, just with Hughes, I mean, he's just a really kind of shy, down to earth kind of guy. He's got a confident confidence to him, um, like he's very sure of himself. But um, yeah, just very quiet, uh, very pleasant to to talk to. He's he's a very like no frills type of player though. He as far as like he doesn't really care about anything. He's the type of player who like person who just like shrugs everything off. Like ah, I don't know, I, I don't really like care. Like so that's the type of person he is. And um, I think from from my perspective, when I am doing a big feature on a player, I just kind of let them know um even when i did for example the markstrom one and projecting um the the long you know the the goaltending dynamic there um just out of respect for him i i went up to him and asked if if um i told him i was working on that story and and if he wanted to comment um just regarding his future and whether he wanted to stay in vancouver and that kind of stuff and just i think players kind of appreciate that um but yeah i mean the the players have been nothing but great to deal with I've got a fun Quinn Hughes question. If we redraft the 2018 draft today and uh, NHL general managers all get a redo, where do you think he goes? That's a really good question. I think uh, I think he definitely top three. I think that's the 
that, that that is I think fairly easy, just because in his rookie season he's already he's already top five in 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 the NHL and in points from a defenseman. Um, he's a he's a number one D. Those are really hard to come by. So um, I think from a positional standpoint, even even though a player like Brady Kachuk has been outstanding, I think he um, he takes the leg up there. I think the real debate comes in when you're trying to order Svechnikov and Dalian and in Hughes because so far, and I wrote a piece on this um, in January as well, comparing Dalian and Hughes, and obviously Hughes is six months older, so he has a little bit of an advantage there. But so far, anyway, Hughes has been better than Dallin by virtually every objective measure, whether it's ice time, uh, the quality of the matchups he faces, his, uh, his point production, two-way impact. Um, just by through every lens, he's been better so far. I think Dallin has the higher ceiling. Um, if that kind of makes sense, um, when both guys hit their primes. And then Sveshnikov, I think he's a franchise winger. It just sort of depends on positional. Um, like, what do you prioritize more? A franchise winger who could probably consistently score 40 goals, or um, are you going to go with uh, with the number one defenseman? So uh, for me, if I was an NHL GM, I'd probably take him second overall. Behind, I'd go Dallin, uh, Hughes, Sveshnikov, but... I could hear um, any argument um, amongst that top three. I have Svechnikov one, just as a fun kind of side. Ooh, I love what he's done in Carolina. I think Svechnikov is, is, he could very well be the best player in that draft. I'm just very, um, like, I, I place a premium on centers and defensemen, just as kind of my overall philosophy. I completely That's agree. A number one defenseman, and we see this in Toronto is much harder to come by than a top-line winger. We have three Paul of Paul Marner would disagree with that. <laughs> well, so you know Darren what? Drager. Let's just say that Paul Marner uh, is very high on his son's abilities. And, okay, so... So I've heard. Quinn Hughes, you take two. Let's leave... Let's leaving the Calder out of this, because I think that that's a debate that's going to be had, and I don't really think that this is a a great time to have it because we don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the year. But just Hughes versus McCarr, you've seen Quinn Hughes play a lot and Kale McCarr plays in the West and Ian and I try and watch uh, both defensemen. They're they're entertaining. For my money, they're they're pretty similar in their impact. They play relatively the same. Um, Kale McCarr gets a little bit more offensive zone starts and Quinn Hughes is PDO was like 97-7 this year, and McCars was 102. So is there that much of a difference, or do you think they're they're kind of on the a similar trajectory and they're both going to be the premier defenseman in the West for the next decade? Yeah, I think um, you, it's a really important thing that you mentioned, the PDO factor, because I think, look, I think Kale McCarr will, just purely from an offensive standpoint, have a long-term edge perhaps because his shot is such a, a unique weapon and it's better than Hughes's. But I think when you stack those two two guys up um, and when you account for future regression, just the fact that when mccarr has been on the ice, he sort of had a little, um, he's had a little bit of on-ice luck um, and, and Hughes hasn't quite had 
quite had that. Um, the gap between those two are a lot closer offensively than people realize. Uh, my colleague Thomas Drantz, back in November when Hughes was considered the runaway, um, wrote on that PDO and said, hey, the gap is really going to narrow. And that's exactly what happened over the course of the second half of the season. Um, where I think Hughes sort of levels the field compared to McCarr is in his two-way impact, particularly defensively. Um, if you look at the underlying numbers and the impact that both of these players have um, in terms of influencing their team's ability to control shots and scoring chances, um, both are phenomenal, but Hughes ha- does have the slight edge in that department, and he's done so against elite competition. So for Vancouver, he's played in a shutdown uh, matchup role, routinely going up against the Connor McDavid's and Nathan McKinnon's of the world since about late November when Alex Edler went out with injuries. So I think um, at, at this point in their career, McCarr maybe has a little bit more offensive pop, but despite his sort of size disadvantage, Hughes actually has um, the two-way edge just in terms of how well he's been able to control play um, in the in the microstats that I've looked at. Um, he's already the Canucks' best defenseman at defending the rush and forcing forcing uh, puck carriers to dump the puck in. Um, so that's how, kind of how I assess it. I think there are virtually equal on on the same level um and maybe that goes against um the the common narrative where people think mccarr does have the leg up but um i see them as virtually on on the same uh plane both are going to be elite number one uh defensemen for the next decade or more they're both like their skating is just phenomenal it's unbelievable to watch they could be doing pirouettes out there and it would look just as nice I feel like Kale McCarr has the higher top-end speed when it comes to that next gear he can hit, but I think Hughes' edge work out of the corner is a little bit better. insane, yeah. Yeah, um, that's one of those things where Hughes isn't, like, if you had a straight-line speed, um, like, he's not gonna, he's not a burner in that sense, but his, yeah, as Ian mentioned, his edge work, just his ability to make tight turns, it's... It's it's just so unreal, and you see he manufactures space when there's nothing in front of him, and just the way he's able to uh, put his arm out, engage where uh, sort of the, the the pressure is, and use his body position, and then spin off of a guy. It's it's unreal to watch, and and Makar, um he's just so explosive, and and his pivot pivoting is really strong in in, in his own regard as well. Watching Hughes in the offensive zone, I just love it when he does a little give and go, whether it's with the high forward or a defense partner. I feel like he treats five on five as as if it's a power play because he knows that he can hold on to the puck. He knows he can get open and it's just like, well, I'm I'm not going to worry about giving up the odd man rush because I can complete this pass. I can beat this guy to that open space. And now we have a a chance to create some offense here. I just, I love the creativity. Ridiculously high panic threshold is what it is. You could have... Two guys, like he could be trying to break the puck out behind his net, and two guys could be coming at him from uh, from both sides of the ice, and he'd somehow find a way to spin off of both of them. It's just he's just um, he feels he doesn't feel pressure. He just has this this um, Ken Holland called it the it factor, the swagger with the puck on his stick, where he 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 could. I mean, you even have his teammates talk about it. Chris Tanev jokes that Hughes could play 30 minutes a night and not break a sweat. So it's just that element that he has. I mean, sometimes you watch him play and just he looks so casual doing all of it. 
Um, so I think he just has ice in his veins in the offensive zone is the biggest thing. All right, so that's, I mean, when you talk about like the elite defense, when we, we, we've got Hughes, you got McCarr, and, and they kind of are taking over for the Carlsons. And while well, Victor Hedman is still very much an elite defenseman, as is Roman Yossi, but I think when you look at the young core that's up and coming of NHL stars, those are kind of the two on the back end that that we're kind of looking at. But I want to I wanna ask you kind of shift. We're going to shift to Harmon now. Because um, the three of us, we kind of talked about it off the hop. We have a similar writing style. Uh, when I used to write for The Athletic, I kind of wrote similar uh, to Ian. And then I noticed you at Canucks Army wrote similar. And I remember the first time I saw Botchford endorse um, one of your pieces. I was like, okay, this, like he's going to take off now. Um, just talk a little bit about... Because we, we kind of try and talk about it, although I feel like you would do a better job explaining it. The balance of too much track data or too much analytics versus too little. So like, how do you know when I can include something versus, eh, does it really need to go in? Is it too much kind of thing? Yeah, I think um, the most important thing for me, I think um, there's sort of two parts of it. One is the actual, I mean, before you even begin writing, you've got to form your own opinion on something, whether it's a player um, uh, the overall team's performance in a certain area. Um, and then you got to find out a way to communicate it effectively without using jargon and making it as simple as possible. Communication is, it, it's just as important as the insight itself. Um, and you find the same things. I'm sure Rachel, you can attest to it working. You've worked behind the scenes when, when you try and communicate things to a coach or a GM, you've really got to be succinct, um, and and so from that element, I think the first thing that com- goes into it, for example, when the Canucks struggle defensively, um, the first thing is sort of look in look into well, I mean the the broad general analytics that's already out there publicly, like scoring chances against expected goals, shots that can tell you okay what's happening, and then. Um, to delve deeper, you've got to ask yourself why. And that's the biggest thing that I try and, and answer in my pieces is is not just the Canucks are bad defensively or the Canucks are good offensively. <laughs> it's why. Like, why is this happening? Why? And exactly. explaining it with both data and video. And so that's where kind of the microstats come in. And you can say, okay, well, they're allowing a ton of controlled entries. They're allowing a lot of odd man rushes. Teams are entering the zone and, and creating passes. Um, and then you take it another step deeper. So why is that happening? And then that's when I kind of try and dive into video and say, okay, well, um, you have a lot of instances where defensemen are pinching aggressively in the offensive zone and the forwards aren't covering or um, or the forwards just aren't reloading well enough on the back check. Um, you look at some of the personnel on the blue line and, and sort of you just piece things together that way. Um, so from my perspective, it's just A, finding out what's happening and then trying to go deeper and, and asking myself why. And then when I sort of put it together, I'm just trying to simplify it as, as quick as, as, as simply as I can. Um, and then um, from that standpoint, trying to include both data and video because it's something with numbers only, it's, right, it's, it's not very intuitive. People need to see something happening with their own eyes. That helps a lot. Um, so that's kind of... The yeah. eye test. Um, and the eye test does help a lot because um, you might have... You know, again, the way I like to, you know, talk about it is analytics. Analytics can tell you 
Um, it shows you results, and it's up to you as an analyst to ask why, right? A lot of times it's um, extraneous variables like your team, like your teammates, right? If if Travis Dermott is is playing all the time with um, with Roman Polak, I mean his numbers are you've probably got to adjust for that. And if his results are still decent, well. They yeah, were exactly. still really good in his rookie year. They exactly. Were... Ian's eyes when you said Roman Polak, I was like, oh boy. Or like here Ryan we go. McDonough with um, who, Dan Girardi for so many years. Um, you know, context and then yeah, video plays a big part in, in why and, and so do so do systems. So that's try that's kind of the balance that I try and strike. I know that whenever I'm writing about a particular topic, uh, when I've gotten the best feedback on certain articles, it's when I include video because it's kind of the way to help bridge that gap between here's a chart that says this, but someone who isn't a big fan of numbers, isn't a big fan of charts, they're going to look at that. It's not going to mean anything to them. But if I go, okay, here's a video example of what I'm talking about there, and I explain it in a bit more detail, it's like, oh, okay, now I can kind of understand where you're coming from. And it's kind of that, it helps kind of, Bridge that gap between the the two competing narratives, which is, oh, I test all analytics. And the smart people in the sport know that that debate is stupid because if you're just completely neglecting information, whether it's video that a scout would be looking at or, like you say, results that are actually happening, then you're missing an important part of the pie. I think, too, like one of the things that I found is I could print out or I could send... Uh, John Hines when I was in New Jersey or whomever in management uh, a thing and if there was no video attached they'd be like ah, like <laughs> yeah. what am I looking at but then I'd be like here's the associated sport logic folder click this link and then they'd click it and there'd be all kinds of like I'd have telestrations in there and and all that and they'd be like oh and I'd be like okay so video one corresponds to this part of the chart video two corresponds to and it's like one of those things where you have to be able to communicate it the whole way across so people who understand math can understand it and people that don't can be able to draw that line between so that you kind of that's how you create that vocabulary and I think Mike Johnson talked about it on Hockey Analytics Night in Canada where we have to have a set vocabulary that is universally understood. That's part of the reason I hate Corsi, you know what I mean? Because Me too. I, feel like I, I hate I hate Corsi. Just call it shot attempts. I hate when people say Corsi. <laughs> like, well, I mean, it's just like, I mean, for example, it's, it's I mean, for how long have, have people cared about or referenced, oh, this, this team outshot the other like 10 to 3 in that period? Pucks in deep, yeah. pucks on net. Yeah, and it's like people you know? care about shots on goal, but because you gave it some some different name that they don't understand in Corsi, that kind of created a barrier for understanding versus if, if it's just like shot attempt share or something. It makes intuitive sense. I would bet $1,000 that if the word Corsi had never come up and it had just been named on a broadcast as shot attempts, it would have been implemented probably over five years ago. And I never once would have heard some old dude yelling in a bar about it because it's just like, oh, look at this new like shot attempts. That's a, a two words that I understand and everything. And it, it's not like Corsi where I now have to go and give you a definition when all you really needed to say was shot attempts like i think i mean pdo doesn't even stand for anything when we talk about that yeah that's like (laughs) not same thing with um although i mean you talk about for example scoring chances versus expected goals um in this case they're actually different things they're pretty similar in that they're trying to measure the quality of shots 
but if you reference scoring chances, everyone everyone's like, hey, this makes sense. But as soon as you say expected goals, they're like, what about actual goals? You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, oh, what was the expected win of that game that we lost? Yeah, you're like, well, actually, check out Money Puck. All right, so we do this thing on the Staff and Graph podcast. It's called the Kovalev Shift. Um, and it's basically on the premise that Alexei Kovalev took way too much time on the ice sometimes, sometimes like five minutes. So it's one of those things where we hop on the ice, as Ian says, and, and we talk about a topic for like five minutes. And then um, that's kind of our our transition. So for this we one... go to the bench, we get some water, you know, stretch our legs a little bit. Exactly. Um, someone asked me to ask you this, and I... I Ian and I were going to talk about it, but then we were having you on and it has to do with the Canucks. So I figured, why not? Um, The Canucks drafting over the past few years has been seen as a great success. They've got Besser and Pedersen and Hughes and Vasily Podkolzin. There's a lot going on there. And someone's name keeps coming up on Twitter, and it's their director of amateur scouting, Judd Brackett. And his contract is up on June 30th. And there's a lot of Canucks fans that seem to be way more angry than I would expect over an amateur scouting director. So can you maybe discuss his impact on the organization um, and potentially what that dynamic is like? Because I don't I couldn't tell you who the amateur scouting directors are for like 28 other teams. But I know Judd Brackett and Paul Castron in New Jersey and Trevor Timmons in uh, Montreal. But like, why is this guy all over Twitter? Yeah, so um, I. It's it's funny because when the initial um, storyline kind of broke out, it was um, people people in the market made jokes that um, Vancouver is the only the only city where um, there would be pitchforks brought out over whether the director of an am- whether the director of amateur scouting is actually going to stay or not. Like it it seems equally important in negotiation negotiation than Jacob Markstrom or Tyler Toffoli or, or whoever that the Canucks also have to resign um, as a player. And I think, I mean, there are even because he's good at his job. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's even like a Twitter account um, that's kind of gained traction. Judd Brackett is underrated or something. Love that Twitter it's, account. It's the best. <laughs> I mean, over the last four or five drafts, they're what? They're a top three drafting yeah, team in the and NHL, right? The biggest thing is, so Brackett started, he was initially hired by Mike Gillis as a part-time USHL um, scout. And so from uh, when, when Benning was hired, he kind of got promoted and worked his way up. But he's always kind of been in charge of that US um, area. And so you look at the, the fruits that have come out of there. Um, Brock Besser, of course, at 23rd overall, no one really knew who he was when the Canucks drafted him in 2015, and he's emerged as a top-line player. Um, the Canucks haven't got, like, they've hit hit on a lot of their early picks, but they haven't done so well later drafting. But you but talk that about, could be development, too, right? right? But you talk about two of their success stories. Both of them sort of come from the United States. One was um, Adam Gaudet in the fifth round. Again, kind of like a controversial pick at the time because he didn't produce a lot um, in the USHL. And he took off um, in college and was on a 46-point pace in the NHL this year. Tremendous value there. Uh, Tyler Madden, another controversial third-round pick. But he had an outstanding fresh uh, freshman year um, in the NCAA, was 
traded to LA in the talk to fully trade, but he really rose up. And so I think you see some of the most prominent success stories for the team drafting wise are tied to bracket. And even when you talk about the Elias Pettersson pick, for example, there was a lot of internal debate. It's widely reported um, whether they were going to take Cody Glass or Pettersson. Um, And it's, it's, it's pretty common knowledge that bracket was one of the ones that was pretty strongly um, favoring Pedersen. Very firmly on Pedersen, yes. yes. <laughs> Didn't they have Pedersen, Makar 1-2 on their yeah, board? Yeah, they had like Makar 1 and Pedersen 2. It's insane. Um, so clearly so I think, he's got an eye for evaluating talent. Yeah, and so I think people see bracket as more um, important for the team's drafting success than Jim Benning. Um, and, you know, we don't really know um, how true that is or not, but that narrative is, uh, narrative is out there. He obviously does his job exceptionally well. Um, and when you hear rumors that he's unhappy, that he might leave the organization, uh, it, it really seems as if they're kind. there's kind of like a dogfight right now where from, from all reports, he's kind of rejected a couple of contract extensions. And it seems to be that um, there's a little bit of a power struggle going on there where... Um, it, from from what other people have been suggesting, he just wants to have autonomy to run his amateur scouting group. Um, and I think that kind of... You look at Jim Benning and assistant GM John Weisbrod, they're also very much boots-on-the-ground type scouts. They like to have their fingerprints um, over the team's scouting, and there might be a little bit there. Who knows how much of that... Um, is real, whether it's exaggerated, but it definitely doesn't seem like it's been a perfectly smooth relationship as of recent recent times. And when, when a prominent scout's contract does come up like that, who people tie together with Pedersen, Hughes, and, and Besser and all these important players, then naturally there is a lot of concern and, and worry if he does leave the, it does leave the organization. I feel like when it comes to assets to professional sports organizations, we don't value the the heads of drafts enough. And I feel like when we're talking about... What are you talking about? In Toronto, all I could hear about was Mark Hunter. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> exactly. I talk about the Hunters again on this podcast. <laughs> I feel like we've done that enough. But... When it comes to teams that need to turn things around, how are you going to do it? Well, this all starts with the draft. You know, we need to draft well, and that's how you maintain long-term success. But whenever we're talking about members of an organization, all we talk about are the coaches and the GMs. We never really talk about the head of the amateur draft. And this is across all sports, and I feel like we need to do that a lot more often. And here's a prime example where Judd Brackett in Vancouver has done a fantastic job over the last few years. His contract's up. This is like John Tavares hitting the open market, but we don't talk about it that way. And most people probably haven't even heard of the guy's name. So I just feel like this is something that probably needs to get a lot more talk than it currently does, just when you consider the value it can have to an organization long term. Alrighty, I think we've done uh, enough meandering and, and a lot of people are going to find out who John Brackett is on this <laughs> podcast now. Um, but I, I mean, like, I think I agree. You don't, no amateur scout is going to blindly say, okay, I will work for this team if you give me no autonomy over X, Y, and Z. Like, you'd think if you're the director of a department, you would have say over maybe the scouts that you hire or how you do things. Like, the assistant GM who's in charge of, like, the salary cap and trades probably doesn't need to be 
worrying about which amateur scout gets hired. So maybe like that's the autonomy they're talking about. I mean, it's really hard to know because there's been some rumblings that they're just not making him available at all to anybody. Oh, he is not available. He's <laughs> like, um I've like he's he's someone who um, everyone wants to talk to. Everyone wants to talk to, and he's he's been. I think he's he did one um, media appearance on uh, like a ten fifteen minute radio hit all year. So that's probably the full on Lou Lamorello moratorium situation. Yeah, you would think. Yeah. All right. So I think we will hop off the ice from our our Kovalev shift. Um, Ian, you want to hit the top three? Yeah. So. During quarantine, we've been talking about our top three, you know, whether it's movies or quarantine snacks, just because there's not much to do. So we like coming up with top threes that help uh, give people some entertainment here at the end of the pod. Harmon, you're based in Vancouver. You write about the Canucks. So your top three, what are your top three Canucks storylines heading into next year? And let's say the 2020-2021 season. We don't know when it starts. We don't know when it ends. There's a lot up in the air right now, but... Let's say you just get to snap your fingers and the season starts tomorrow. What are like the three main storylines going into that season? Um, so you want me to do Canucks and NHL? No, just yeah, the Canucks. Canucks. So NHL? No, Canucks. <laughs> <laughs> Harmon's like, I want to do the NHL. And we're like, no, Canucks. <laughs> okay, good. Because um, I think A is is the goaltending situation. If Markstrom comes back or not. Um, B is um, Toffoli versus Vertanen. I think that's that's going to be a big thing. A couple of uh, right wingers uh, for Vancouver. Vertanen's an RFA. He's going to command around $3 million based off of his arbitration rights. Um, and Tyler Toffoli was um, a slam dunk fit for Vancouver in, in his 10 games. So um, it's another one of those situations where, um, similar to the goaltending front, if Markstrom's there long term. It's tough to see a future for Demko. Well, if the Canucks commit six or seven million a year on Toffoli, it's tough to see them having the room for someone like Vertanen. Um, and then third is is just they're going to have to make the playoffs next year, especially with that lottery pick on the line. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with that uh, pick that they gave to JT Miller. I think if the season is um, if if it is ultimately canceled, they'll probably end up keeping the first that they dealt uh, to Tampa Bay, and which was subsequently flipped to New Jersey in the JT Miller trade. Um, and that would mean they have an unprotected 2021 first round pick, and they're likely going to be a bubble team. So I think that's going to be you know the the top three storylines. What's going to happen goaltending wise? Toffoli slash Vertanen, and then. You know, it, it comes down to this playoffs. If, if they don't make the playoffs, people are going to lose jobs in the organization. All right. So that's that's kind of interesting. Um, I like it. Do you think that maybe um, COVID-19 sort of impacts it? Because we don't know. There's a, a lot of teams that traded away picks at the deadline for players for playoff runs that might not actually get to use them. So... It, it may be that there's some compensation that goes back or I'm, there's going to have to be something that that gets worked out. Do you see the potential that whatever comes of this COVID-19 stuff impacts the Canucks the way it might some other teams? 
I think so, because, um, again, you mentioned um, rentals. I mean, the Canucks, they, they gave up a second-round pick in this year's draft, and one of their top, if not one of their top three prospects, one of their top five prospects in Tyler Madden. So they gave up significant assets for a player that they only got 10 games worth of value on, um, in which they didn't even get a chance to play in the playoffs. So it's... It, if the season kind of ended that way, it would it would really really suck for them because a second round pick and in, in Tyler Madden that's the type of package that could probably get rid of Louis Erickson's contract, for example. Um, so for, from that front, I think there are going to be a lot of teams that push for some type of compensation for um, for the rentals that they paid. I don't think there were a ton of teams that paid like a lot of assets for for players on expiring deals like do you guys know who else was kind of um out there because i like with tampa they acquired goudreau and um i think it was more um there were a lot of conditions for the most part i was reading through and i was talking to um someone in within the hockey circles and they were saying that more than ever this year there were conditions placed on the right. trades how are you going to determine the conditions because okay if a player plays in 10 playoff games you get this pick if a if you don't make the playoffs it's this well we don't even know who made the playoffs right now because right. you don't you haven't even determined how that's going to be weighted if this player plays this many games okay well the team didn't even play that many games so how do you make that determination i think that that's potentially the biggest story is how is the NHL going to manage that? Because there's a lot of conditions that looking back on it from a legal perspective were impossible by an act of God. So how yeah. are you going to manage that? Because I don't think that it's fair to say that uh, eight games of Barclay Goudreau is worth a first round pick. Like, I think if you go ask. Well, I don't think any amount of games of Barclay <laughs> well, Goudreau yeah, okay, is worth fair. a first round pick. <laughs> I think Goudreau and um, so I was giving the Tampa example. Goudreau and I think uh, Coleman were both. They had an extra year left, so it's kind of like for Tampa, it's a little bit less because um, they get um, they get an extra season out of those out of those but guys. What about but like yeah, Taylor team Hall? like Vancouver. Yeah, um, and I mean, I think that situation is going to be really really interesting to watch um, in Arizona because they gave up a ton to get him. Yeah, like I think. I mean, if they don't keep him, that's a lot to give up. Yeah, I mean, I'm not that high on the prospects they got. Like, I don't really think either one of them is is going to be anything more than either a. Kevin Ball is very tall. And we all know how they like their big players in New Jersey, and we're just going to leave it at that. Um, I think that the picks are what's important there and I believe yeah. there are conditions on those picks so it's like how are you determining who gets what is it going to be an arbitrator that decides that sits there at every single trade is it going to be a panel are they going to let them go through and piss off every single GM like it'll be interesting to see how things are handled I'm curious to see kind of what they do and how that impacts various teams because I'd be furious if I traded assets that were conditional and now I'm having to give up picks for eight games of a player Right? How are they going to manage free agency at this point? Because technically, from a legal perspective, the contracts expire, I believe, July 1st at noon. So what if you're playing games in August? Like, that's a CBA issue at that point. 
So I'm not sure if we have much more to add on that, just because I feel like that's kind of above our heads when it comes to the decisions that need to be made CBA-wise and legally when it comes to the league trying to figure out what they're going to do throughout this COVID-19 situation, because none of us know. It's something that changes you know, daily when it comes to the numbers that we're seeing. But getting back to the top three, Rachel, what are your top three shows right now? So like shows that are currently on TV? Because I feel we did Netflix shows, right? So shows that are like current, I guess, right? So where they're still making episodes of the show, the show hasn't ended yet. Ooh, okay. Um, one that won't count because the series finale is quite literally tomorrow is Shit's Creek. That's a Canadian show and the three of us are Canadian, so... You brought Shit's Creek up already, so yeah, you need to pick something like new that. here. Okay, so I'm gonna go full, like, your ridiculous kind of thing, because I, when I watch TV, like, I watch so much sports that I just want to watch, like, mindless garbage. So I'll go the Bachelor franchise. So it's like Bachelor, Bachelorette, like all that. 90 Day Fiance is a glorious <laughs> tire fire. I absolutely My love it. My sister will attest to that. My sister loves that show. And I'll say Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. I think that that's, it's awesome TV every Sunday night. I approve of that show. That is, uh, that's a good selection there. If we're talking about trashiness, um, my girlfriend and I have been watching uh, Love is Blind oh, on Netflix lately. Show. Have either of you seen that? Yes. No. Harmon, you gotta it's, watch uh, it. <laughs> so the premise of the show is that if, if Love is truly blind, then Nick Lachey needs to host a show where people don't see each other and they have conversations and then without having seen each other, they decide to get married. And then wow. try to work out that marriage. Uh, I'm I'm very early in the show, but it started it's as a so social ridiculous that to see. I I'm kind of down for it, honestly. It's so ridiculous that that's what's keeping me around. Well, you're a psych major, so I feel like this is right up your alley. <laughs> There's a lot to analyze. Um, I'll go with a, a serious answer, and uh, for anyone who has Netflix, there's a show called Atypical that I'm a huge fan of. It's a show about uh, kids on the spectrum. The main character is on the spectrum in high school, and he's trying to navigate you know, the dating life and everything. And I've been working at a camp for kids with special needs over the past five summers, and I think it's one of the most accurate representations of autism. I feel like there are a lot of shows that do it in a way that makes me feel super uncomfortable when I'm watching it. I just go, ooh, this... This isn't going to age well in 10 or 15 years when we look back on it. But the show Atypical, I think, does a really good job. And should I go trashy or should I go real with my next pick? Go trashy. Go trashy. We're here Ugh. for trashy. I wanted to go real and pick an actual good show. See, I don't watch a lot of trash. It's okay, normally fine. stuff that like my sister or my girlfriend forced me to watch. And, and I just uh, I get hooked. Uh I'm trying to think. What, what are you watching that's trashy right now? Because I've probably seen a lot of it. Harmon, do you watch trashy TV? Honestly, for me, I don't even have... Uh, I had to cut Netflix out because I get too distracted. Like, I just binge, right? So, um, I had one summer where I watched all of The Office in, like, two weeks, oh. which is, what, like, eight or nine seasons? Jesus. Um, so, that was, like, a couple summers ago, and from that point on, I was like, yeah, I should probably cut it out, so... Um, I mean, I used to watch, I'm really basic. So for me, like The Office, um, How I Met Your Mother and, and that kind of stuff. But right now I mostly just, I actually watch way more YouTube than I do TV shows. Do you watch Steve Dangle? Uh, not often. 
I feel like there's there's nothing for him I to yell to, about anymore. I, I watched. Uh, I definitely watched um, the the David Ayers after the Leafs lost. <laughs> so oh that was God. that was very entertaining. All right. Yeah, I feel like there's some good. Like, if you want good shows, um, there's like this chicago it's the chicago franchise so like every wednesday night from 8 to 11 there's like chicago med which is the hospital chicago fire which was the original it's about like the fire department and then chicago pd and they kind of the storylines are kind of intertwined so that's actually good tv as opposed to the trash that ian and i just discussed and then the good shows that Harmon brought up Hey, why not both? Why not go with Tiger King, which I would argue is half decent and also complete trash, and it, it's why it's sucked in like most of the world right now. I'm sorry, I, it's it's very interesting. I have watched it eight <laughs> times because I wow I learn something new every time. Harmon, have you seen it? No, oh I told God. you I, I had to I, I I had to delete I had to stop my Netflix. You you have to see it if nothing else for the memes because they are just like. There's so many good memes that come of it. And it's when I described it to my mom, I was like, okay, think if you think of adding owning tigers, murder for hire, arson, gay polygamy, and uh, an attempt to run for president all in the same person. Wow, that's that's insane. (laughs) Yeah, it's there's a lot going on. And I feel like every time I watch it, I learn something new. Can I just say that once Joe Exotic wasn't wasn't there anymore, I lost interest? Honestly, yeah, he did a lot of silly, silly things. Like, he would shoot... This is actually a glowing endorsement as to why uh, guns are dangerous and perhaps not all that necessary. Because of Joe Exotic. <laughs> <laughs> he would go, like, honestly, Harmon, he would go to Walmart, buy, like, uh, tenonite, and just shoot at it to create explosions for no reason in his backyard. <laughs> like... <laughs> That sounds very American. Very Oklahoma, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I feel like that's that's it. Do we have anything else for Harmon? Boy genius. Do we have any questions for him before we, we get him out of here? Ooh, I'm trying I to have think one. of a Your favorite Jason Botchford story. Because I know you and him had this Ooh, really cool dynamic and right. I love I just love the story. So, your favorite moment or anything with him interaction? Um, see, that's the thing. It's it's with um, with Jason Boschford, and for those that don't know, he was the athletic Vancouver. He was um, the senior writer um, before he unfortunately uh, passed away last year. Um, I, I it, it's tough because. There isn't kind of like one moment that stands out other than um, he was just an overall kind of mentor for me. Um, and it was it was like one of those people who um, like Ian and I or, or Rachel and I like we, we go back and forth on hockey except we do it except with with botch and i it was like every waking moment it felt like okay. we would just be tossing we we'd be talking about hockey or whatever and um and of course he helped me a ton with with my career he he um i still get dms about it today um where people are like oh i'm so glad botch kind of um 
endorsed you and like you know would talk about you everywhere because that's how i found out about you um but i think the biggest one was definitely the the first kind of practice i went to covering the canucks um this was while i was still in school last year and i was a freelancer and he just kind of dm me one day and was like you should like it'd be good for you to go out and come out to practice and and just get into the process of interviewing someone so you can have the data the analytics and um and the player's voice in there. Um, and I thought it was a great idea. And and so he worked with me and, and he thought of, okay, like who's a good player that, I mean, as, as a 19-year-old, first time in an NHL locker room wouldn't be too intimidating to talk to. Um, and he set, he set sort of the entire interview up him, himself just as far as talking to PR. And so I interviewed Horvat that day. And um, and, and even, even going to the practice itself, um, the, it was at one of the university rinks and apparently like and i didn't even know this until someone else mentioned it it's like an hour from where um botchford lived like it's it wasn't at the main rogers arena where they have most of the practices he wouldn't even go to those practices he only went there because of me that day um and it just kind of goes to show that he yeah he he took literally three hours out of his life um, just to show up at a practice when he had already set everything up for me. That's, yeah, that's awesome. I love hearing about stuff like that, like people going out of their way to to help someone else out. And it makes you think, like, if either of the three of us are ever in a position where, like, we can do that, that, like, that gets carried forward, right? Because now it's like, okay, someone 100%. did that for me, I'm going to do that for someone else kind of thing. The pay it forward mentality. I was a huge fan of Jason Botchford, so I'm, I'm going to feel terrible making this transition here. But before we get Harmon out of here, I had a joke question for you. Uh, so you have one get out of jail free card here. One, let's call it a non-compliance buyout. You get to use it on Louis Erickson, Jay Beagle, or Tyler Myers. Who are you using it on? For people who don't know, Louis Erickson, three years, six million. Uh, Jay Beagle, three years, three million for a replacement level center. And Tyler Myers, five years, six million for whatever Tyler Myers is. <laughs> um, it would definitely be Erickson. And I and I say, I mean, Beagle, he makes the least. So um, that kind of rules him out in, in my mind. Um, and then for Myers, he has a longer term, but he's also decent. Like he's a useful defenseman and especially on Vancouver's right side. Um, they've got Tanev as an unrestricted free agent. They've got Stetcher as an RFA. So if you buy Myers out, you literally have no right side D and you're probably like the Winnipeg Jets. So it's, um, I, I'd, I'd have to keep Myers just cause he's useful. even though that contract is probably going to age poorly. And, um, you can say goodbye to, uh, Louis Erickson, who, um, if people don't know, he's like the most memed player in Vancouver. It is insane. Like when he scored a goal in Edmonton on November thirtieth. See, I can remember the exact date he's he Cody scored because he never does it. <laughs> hey, guess but, um, guess which Vancouver Canuck has the best adjusted shot differential this year on evolving? Probably Wild. Erickson. He's yep. Yeah. Oh. So he he. He's like a black hole offensively, right? And so he scores that game, and um, like it was so nuts. It was like I remember the Army's headline that day was Louis Erickson night in Canada. <laughs> That's amazing. This is like when Martin Marinchin scored that goal against uh, Vancouver, and you're in Toronto for that, right? That was, yeah, that was one of the but better nights of my life. Up. I loved that game. <laughs> that was a game ball. That was the game ball night. 
That was one of my favorite articles I wrote just because I'm like, Martin Marincin scored a highlight real goal. I don't know what life is anymore. I saw with my own eyes Martin Marincin carry the puck up the ice, beat a defender, go bar down from the top of the circle, and then get his own rebound because it hit the crossbar and score like like an individual all-by-himself effort. And I was like, what the hell did I just watch? That's one of those things, though. Like, you just... I, I would have picked Erickson too. I mean, for my money, like, that's just... It was an ill-advised contract from the very beginning. Um, and just to, like, to see the memes, because I make it... I try and follow some Vancouver, uh, let's say, the sarcasm side of things. So, like, I follow Judd Brackett as underrated just because it's, it's so funny. Yeah, he's so funny. The memes that come out of Vancouver... Vancouver has the best memes. I'll say it right now. Like you, it's. I mean, sometimes it gets a little bit. um, Like if you go on the the Canucks' Reddit page, sometimes it can sort of um, you you question whether like some of the memes become questionable. But like there are there was some fire content coming out of Vancouver. I feel like Vancouver has found the medium of like we make fun of ourselves and like make fun of our own players with memes whereas like toronto it's very angry people edmonton is angry at everybody except Connor mcdavid and leon dreisaitl montreal is angry in two languages ottawa's just like <laughs> we're here and our owner exists and that's kind of like where you're at because vancouver at least can like be funny and poke fun at themselves. Whereas, like, Edmonton, if you even breathe in their direction, like, a whole angry mob comes at you. What do you mean you don't have Leon Dreisaitl number one in your heart rankings? Like, oh. <laughs> oh, my God. It's it's nuts. I mean, you look at the, just the self-deprecating humor. I mean, that was what uh, was so good about Jason Botchford was um, just he could he could, he could could do that type of sort of poking fun at, at his own team. And... Um, at, at the own, t- own team he covers and I mean just all the I mean the dark ages the Eric at Branson days and um, you know there would be obviously with with Erickson and uh, the own goal I mean the first game he plays in he scores in his own net like that became a legend right from day one um, I mean uh, just just so many good memes from from the dark ages I mean if it wasn't for the memes and 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 for all the poking fun at themselves I don't know if Vancouver would have survived like the last four or five years of hockey before this season four or five years man try like decade basically ever since the the city rioted it's been it's been a rough go in the in the post uh post Sedine world, but I feel like they're on the right track now and they've got great people like you covering them. So um, thanks again for joining us, man. Really appreciate you hopping on the pod. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me guys. Alrighty. We will be back next week and who knows what we'll be talking about. I don't think Harmon will be back next week, but like Ian said, we thank boy genius for coming on and I'm sure we'll have him on in the future because Let's be honest, if there was going to ever be a third person on this podcast, it would probably be Harmon. Aw, thanks, guys. (laughs) Honorary member of the podcast. Thanks for joining us, man. We'll do this again sometime soon. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. 
Also be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. Bye.